Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that uh, we get to fall underneath your word. We get to see what you're doing. I pray, Father, that you will use this study today to help us uh, see maybe new perspectives to consider and new ways of looking at what you're doing with the book of Ruth, Father, and uh, to find ways that um, we can appreciate, that we can apply, that we can bring glory to your name as we allow this, the bigness of what you're doing in this book to really delight our hearts, to cause us to find such joy in doing that which you have set out to do in us, bring sanctification about in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I might say sanctification in our hearts and our actions. Uh, it starts in the heart. So, um, this week it was really a fascinating study on Ruth. I have not taken a deep dive on Ruth before. Um, kind of a, it's a woman's Bible study book. It's, seriously, that was kind of my take on Ruth. I mean, I, I read it, I know it. I've read it several times. We've got the, you know, go through it once, at least once a year in my Bible study. Um, but never taken a deep dive, and I am thrilled that um, uh, the author this week is from John J. Yeo, Y-E-O, Yeo, I, I don't, don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Fascinating. One of the things I appreciate about the book that we're studying from is that they're Presbyterians, most of the writers there. And one of the things that the Presbyterians do really well is they think of the book as a whole, and they think of the book in covenantal terms. Where does this fit into whatever covenant we're in? And so it gives you, I mean, we, we believe in covenant theology, that the, the Lord gives us his understanding of him and how we're to relate to him by his re, uh, progressive revealing of the covenants to us up until we get to the new covenant, the covenant of grace. So I'm going to expose you to some things today that maybe will make you go, huh, I never thought of it like that. I have to tell you that the basis of my theology came initially out of non-denominational uh, Christianity. And so I tend to think of, I tend to look at the books independent of each other. And that's a bad way of doing it. It's a default for me. And I need to see that this is one book, the Bible, and that these books all fit together. So with that, I hope I'm going to challenge you today as, as the, the author challenged me in some areas. Okay. Um, so from a covenant uh, position, you can... Oh, let me just explain the way we're going to do it differently. You'll notice I don't have the kind of the graphic roadmap on the back that I normally have to, to go through the book because it's only... It's a book that we most of us already understand the, the crux of what's going on in it. I want to take us in a... Uh, few different directions on it. If you see blue font, that means we're going to read that. So Mark, that's your cue to give that the, the, uh, the mic to whoever uh, might be prepped for it. I'm not going to prep anybody. I didn't give out any assignments. Um, also, there is one blue print on the very back page because the, they're in the middle of a quote. The author didn't really s explain what the word rest meant, and I want to make sure that we don't get confused with what the word uh, rest meant, so I put it in blue, so you know that I broke out of the quote and gave my own little insight into it, so it, uh, the author gets full credit for what he did, and, I, and I hopefully you, it, my little addition helps uh, explain it a little more. All right, so let's look at the author. Almost everybody will say, the author is anonymous. We can't know who the author is. 
That's where I was before the study. Interesting enough, in my seminary, I'm in a, a course called the Doctrine of the Word. That's a course that's to study the Word of God. And just this past week, he dealt with the fact that, look, you have to know that one of the, the additional ways that we can know that the Word of God is the Word of God and it's intended to be the Word of God and we've got the right Word of God, we've got the canon that God designed for us, is, again, and, and remember, well, you guys may not, may not know this, and if you grew up Catholic, you grew up knowing that the, or believing that the church determined what books were going to go in it. Therefore, the church are, is, is the final authority over the canon, what books are in the Bible. And uh, the Bible testifies that God is the head over the canon, and God gave us the canon, and the church is realizing what God has given in the canon, not determining and therefore having authority over. Nobody can have authority over the God of, of the Bible because that puts you above God. And if you put the church as the final authority, you put the church above God. So that's a little bit of a, a head wrestling to deal with. But one of the things that, that I learned this week that I was challenged with, he says, okay, the instructor is teaching us this, and it happens to be the president of the seminary that's teaching this particular course. And he says, the whole Old Testament is written under the authority and under the, the authority of the, of the institution, the prophetic institution. Every author in the book of the Old Testament is a prophet. That's how you can know. In other words, what is a prophet? Someone who receives the word of God and then communicates it audibly or in, by way of writing. Now, they could have a scribe do it, but that's how you can know that it's the word of God. Because the test is... If, it's not, if the prophet's false, you kill him. Done. Get rid of him. God tells you to do that in, in Leviticus, Leviticus 18. So we understand that. So he also points out, look, for the New Testament, the prophetic institution hasn't changed. And I'm like, oh, now you've got my non-denominational uh, structure of my mind pricked here. What do you mean? He says the same prophetic institution um, that makes sure that the Old Testament is absolutely God's word is the same mechanism being used in the New Testament through the apostles. And now you understand the value of the apostles, but you go, well, wait a second. The apostles didn't write all the books. You're correct. Just like there are scribes, there were apostle, apostle representatives in the Old Testament, or excuse me, in the New Testament, or apostles authored. You look at Luke. Luke went out and did his... Luke's not an apostle. He goes out and uh, uh, gets all of the facts, and the facts are ultimately put out on what he has learned. He's under the authority, the apostolic authority, and this is what God, he, he is more of an investigator, and they are authorizing what he has investigated to be correct. Does that make sense? So you have this, those two institutions. So, now let me take it back to Samuel, or excuse me, to Ruth. We may not know which prophet wrote Ruth, if you start at that preface, but the, it, all of the books of the Old Testament came out of the prophetic institution that we got, call God's authority, that he has given the, 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 that which God speaks through. All right, I'm going to take it one step further. Okay. If it's a prophet, which prophet? Can we possibly know? Let's look at your, your and I'm going to, actually, I'm going to ask somebody before we get reading this. First Samuel 15, 1. Anybody uh, want to, Mark, you got that all set up? And then how about, do you want to do, uh, there we go, we'll do husband and wife there. First Chronicles 29, uh, 29 through 30. Let me just read here, according to the author. 
According to the Talmud, some of you may have, don't know what Talmud is. There's some different books in the Jewish background that are, you know, we, we're not familiar with that culture, so we go, what is that? The Talmud is the Jewish rabbinic commentary. Commentaries are not inspired. Those are godly men trying to make sense of things. The Jewish rabbinic commentary on how the law and theology are applied within the Jewish community. So this book, according to the Talmud, Sam, they, and I'm now reading from a quote, Samuel the prophet wrote the book which bears his name and the books of Judges and Ruth. It was completed by Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet. Can I ask somebody? I'm going to, sorry, this, Mark, this is going to go outside the blue uh, structure we're using. I'm just going to ask, does anybody know what a seer is? There we go. I don't even go there. I'll just repeat back. Rob Roy says it's a prophet. So I want you to understand something. Um, and this is kind of neat because I'm teaching through Exodus. Moses is the only prophet that gets to, to, to talk with God face to face. All of the prophets, it says, they see visions. God gives them visions or he speaks to them. So they are called seers when, it, when it's emphasizing what they were received, it's prophets and what they communicated. So seers and prophets in, this, in the Bible are the same. You understand that they're both, that's the both two names being used to understand what a, uh, that this person is a prophet. So it says it was completed by Gad the seer and Nathan the prophet. And you're thinking, wow, that's a pretty gutsy statement right there. You know, most uh, non-denominational uh, or mainstream evangelical uh, commentators that I saw would say, we don't know who wrote the book of, of, of Ruth. The, the Talmud is saying, oh yeah, we know who it is, and it's a prophet, and it's the prophet Samuel. So with that, let's read First, first Samuel 15, 1. We, this is going to point out a problem to the, what that, I, the statement I just said. Go ahead and read that. And Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. Okay. Um, I did not give you the right one. I was supposed to give you 1 Samuel 25 one. I recognize that as soon as you got there, I'm going, nope, that's not the verse I wanted. Still pretty good. Great verse, great verse. <laughs> Out of context, great verse. <laughs> all right, 1 Samuel 25 one. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Okay, we got a problem. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. It says 1 Samuel because it's, there's a second Samuel in the English version of the library. In the old writings, the scroll was one scroll, and it was just Samuel. There was no first and second Samuel. It was all one book. But we got at least at the halfway point, we got our writer dying. That's going to be a problem. Because somebody had to, someone else had to write everything else. Unless God gave him everything before he died, it dictated and said, this is everything that's going to happen, and then he writes ahead. We don't believe that. That's not the way God works on that, to that level. So somebody else is, is writing this. So read, uh, now, uh, uh, Carol, will you read First Chronicles? This is correct. 29, 29 through 30. Now the acts of King David from the first to last are written in the chronicles of Samuel the seer and in the chronicles of Nathan the prophet and in the chronicles of Gad the seer with accounts of all his rule and his might and of the circumstances that came upon him and upon Israel and upon all the kingdoms of the countries. Okay, so we see that Gad the seer is involved in that as, as well as Nathan. 
These aren't books that are secret books that we don't know about. These are written in here. They're the guys that take over after Samuel dies in 1 Samuel 25.1. And they're continuing to write that. And notice it starts off with giving us an idea. This is on all of the, the basically, everything to do with David you can find in these books. And you're like, oh, there's a theme with these three books. These books, including Ruth, have everything to do with David. Now, I don't know if you've, if you, when you've studied Ruth before, if David was just an attachment or an addendum on the back end of Ruth to say, oh, then somebody jumped in through a, a genealogy and said, oh, by the way, Obed is going to be the great-grandfather or the grandfather, I'm, I'm, I might be confusing that, of David. And so all of a sudden, you just think that that's a tack on, just a, a little bit of a foreshadowing. Well, now, according to, to what we just read in, in Chronicles, the author, Samuel, the, uh, the focus is on the life of David. Samuel writes Ruth um, in the days before and leading up to David because he's alive during that time. And, and his goal is to point out the legitimacy of who David is as the true king. Not Saul, the first king. David is the true king, the king that God chose. So you've got three books to emphasize this king. So now with that, look, look at underneath there is, is the uh, quote by John uh, Yeo. Uh, underneath that, that uh, the author there, it says, The central and collective theological themes in the books of Judges, Ruth, and 1 Samuel is to legitimize David as the true king of Israel in the face of Saulite oppression. Saulite oppression is Saul's oppression. Saul, interesting enough, the king they chose because he looked like a king compared to the other kings, tall, this is, this is a dominating guy. Yeah, this guy dominates them and oppresses the, the, the people of, of Israel. Saul is not God's choice. Saul is, God allows him, and so you can say he ordained it if you want to use that. But Saul is the people's choice. So now we get to... We, it, we realize that Ruth has more to do with, I shouldn't say more to do, Ruth has a, a theme running through it that's pointing to David. Okay, the date. So um, we see that Samuel judged Israel from 1076 to 1051. So he's got to write it during his lifetime. He lives a little bit past that, but he's got it, we're, we're narrowing down the time frame when this was, had to be written by Samuel. The genre is short story with an apologetic focus on David's reign. Apologetic means he's making an argument for the legitimacy of David's reign in the book of Ruth. I'm not taking away, nor does this, this understanding take away anything about this person, Ruth. But you have to understand, this person, Ruth, has an important role in the gene genealogy of the king of Israel, who is going to be the forerunner that points to the king of Israel, Jesus Christ. So it's very important on, his theo on, on the genealogy here uh, for a couple of reasons why we move that direction. So we have, uh, let, me, let me continue on. The, the book's intent is to honor David by remembering the noble characters in his family history. It's, it, I almost think that in itself is ironic because the noble, one of the noble characters is going to be a Moab, is going to be someone who is outside of the genealogy of the Jewish nation, which is a beautiful picture of the Gentiles always being thought of on the periphery, periphery if you will, of, of 
what the Jews understand initially, but what comes out in the New Testament is that the Gentiles are welcome to this salvation. They're always welcome, but they become more of the focus after the, the Israel in the New Testament says, we don't, we're not interested in this God. It's not our Savior. And so we see that the roles switch, and it, it turns towards a Gentile, uh, mostly a Gentile, um, a message that the Gentiles are receiving. I'll put it that way. Okay, so then underneath the bullet point there, it says this. Everything is told as if all just happens. Oh, this is dealing with the irony. Let me, I, I need to read irony above this. Irony is defined, and I'm using it in this way, as incongruent, incongruity means two things don't appear to work together. They're incongruent. They, how do those work together kind of things? Um, incongruity between what, may, what might be expected and what actually occurs. We certainly wouldn't expect a Moabite to be in the lineage of King David, who is in the lineage of our Lord and Savior. Okay, um, so uh, that, we got an idea of what irony is, and then under the bullet point there, it says, everything is told as if all just happens randomly. And this is fun. I'm going to take us through a little sampling. I did not see how much, air quote, randomness is in Ruth that you have to say, how did I miss this? This is screaming of God's sovereignty. I mean, this, these things just don't, you can't put all this stuff to happen like this so randomly. So the, everything is told as if everything just happens randomly in the unfolding of everyday life and the many decisions we make. However, the overwhelming happenstance, not just happenstance, is designed to point the reader to, to see the active sovereignty and goodness of Yahweh, uh, uh, God, uh, the, the God of the Israelites that covenanted with them. Um, even in this disobedient family seeking prosperity, goodness, this disobedient family, we're going to see that uh, Ruth's, sorry, uh, Naomi's family, when they leave, are actually disobedient when they leave Israel. When they go to Moab to flee from the famine, they are being disobedient. They are seeking prosperity outside of trusting God. So we'll continue on here. Uh, Even in this disobedient family seeking prosperity or goodness in a foreign land, and what does a foreign land represent in the Old Covenant? A land ruled by another God. So you're seeking by Ruth's family, excuse me, by Naomi's family, by... uh, I always get his name. I struggle with it. Elimelech. 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 Sorry. I struggle with that one because I, I, I'm doing something in the Hebrew in my mind, and I'm going to show you what that word means. The uh, Elimelech is wrong in taking his family to go over there, and yet we're going to see God's grace upon him even in the midst of him being chastised. So let's take a look. Canonical placement. This, when I say canon, I'm talking about the books of the Bible. Again, that God gave us. We, the church, didn't authorize this. God gave the, these books. We arranged them differently than the Jewish people arranged them. Now, you might think that the Jewish people arranged the Bible. Oh, the Jewish have one version of the Bible the way, the way it's arranged. The, the rest of the world, the, New Test, the, the Christians in the world, have a different way of arranging it. Because there's no Christians that I know of that arrange their Bible differently than this. Uh, than what you have in front of you. You and I, if you open your Bible, I open my Bible, as long as it's, it's not something like the uh, Mormon Bible or something like that, um, then all the books will be the same books in the same order. 
Well, in the Jewish, uh, what they're doing, remember the, the Talmud is Jewish commentary. It's men trying to understand um, as best as possible what's going on. It's like your study notes at the bottom of your Bible. That's a commentary. Um, I use commentaries uh, after I've, uh, I prepare for anything. I look and, and see what the commentaries say after looking at the languages first. So the Old Testament, there were different groups, different sects, S-E-C-T-S, of uh, uh, Jews that would say, no, the Bible, I'll say it this way, the, the Torah and all of the prophets and the writings should be set up in this order. And other groups would say, no, 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 no not that order of the books, in this order. Well, the predominant is what we're going through in this study. We're looking at how the, 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 what is listed here is the Ben Asher family. They're the family that theirs became the most influential. It's the most that the Jews, most of the Jewish writing today, if you look at their, their version of the, of the Old Testament, you'll see it in the order that we're studying it in this class. And they, I'm going to read it now. It says, the Ben Asher family of manuscripts places this book, it's talking about Ruth, immediately after Proverbs. We've got it after Judges. What's it doing after Proverbs? Why would you put it after Proverbs? We do it, at, we being Christians, put it after Judges because that's when the author lived, that's the time frame of Ruth. It makes factual sense why you would put it there. Ah, but the Jews are theological. We're kind of Westerners. We like linear. Put it in order of history. Let's keep it that way. Jews think in, in, in bigger context of theology. So they put, and there's nothing, don't get me wrong, the, the, the ordering of the books is not inspired by God. Got it? You can't say, well, they're, they're wrong. And they, no, no, no. The ordering of the books, where they land in the, in the Bible, is not inspired. The writing of them is. The content of it. So, the Ben Asher family of manuscripts places the book immediately after Proverbs. This arrangement is, and this is the author I'm quoting, this is from Daniel Block, um, propitious, I didn't even know what that is. I'm, as a police officer, they teach you to write in sixth grade. Uh, never go above sixth grade so your jury will always know what you're writing. Everything's clear. The big words, we would say, no, those would get scratched out of any report. You don't use those in reports. So I'm, a lot of my, my own, when I see big words, I go, well, if I don't know what it is, there's a chance that somebody else here doesn't know what it is. So let's look at it. I put the meaning next to it here. It means it presents a favorable circumstance. That, that nice word that I even struggle to, have, to say it properly. For it places the story of Ruth immediately after, after the alphabetic celebration of the wifely nobility in Proverbs 31. He's done two things there. I did not talk about Proverbs like this last week because I didn't want to confuse you. Proverbs 31 happens to be using, when, when all of the lines in Proverbs 31, if you were to read it in, in Hebrew, um, as it relates to the Proverbs woman, are all listed by, in, in alphabet order of the Jewish uh, alphabet. Okay. Neat fact. wasn't necessarily helpful, so I didn't share it with you. That's what he's referencing here. The key I want you to see on is that they see that this book of Ruth should follow on the heels of Proverbs 31. All right, let me throw that out. Why? Tell me something about Ruth that would be consistent with that, theologically speaking. Yeah, Jamie's got a uh, question, or an answer, I should say. Well, she's our classic Proverbs 31 woman. She's the classic Proverbs 31 woman. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that neat that the Jews recognize a Moabite as the classic 31, Proverbs 31 woman. How cool is that? 
they get it. Do we, I mean, it's just neat that at least the, the, those that were arranging this particular arrangement, the Ben Asher family arranged their, their Bible this way, their Old Testament Bible, they see her as, man, that's the living of it. Okay, this, this, this woman lives out everything that we see in the, the Proverbs 31 as far as the loyalty aspect and, and, and loyalty to God. In fact, now when you see what she, the statement she makes to Naomi about your God will be my God, where you go, I'll go, you start to see, oh, I see the connection to Proverbs 31. And, and she's loyal to Yahweh. She came out of a system as a Moabite that was, they had their own God. And she says, no, I, I, I'm done with that. I, it's your God. And she, if we understand, according to the Bible, they were 10 years in Moab, after, and it's somewhere in there they're married. Let's just say they're married on year one. She's got 10 years of interaction with Naomi, and she sees in Naomi something different about her God versus Naomi's, Naomi's God versus the God of the Moabites. It's a beautiful picture of God impressing upon her, a Gentile, this beautiful understanding of who he is. Okay, let's continue on. Let's go for structure and outline. So you're going to see his, the author is going to use the word royal line because remember, if Samuel, oh, I'm going to say it this way, you can, just, you can believe, I'm not telling you what to believe. I hold that it's, it's, it's written by the prophet Samuel. And I agree with the, the author of this study that says that everything's pointing to David. So you're going to hear in his layout, his outline, the word royal line, that everything's based around it. So let's look at this. The prologue is disobedience in the royal line. We're going to see that by Elimelech. Thank you. I, I, by the way, I took speech impediment course in second grade. I used to, when you get to some of these, these are tongue tires for me. Acts 2, or Acts 1, like Act 1, not at the book of Acts. Uh, the punishment and predicament for the royal line. Interesting, punishment. Well, if you're thinking about this in a covenant aspect, you'll see this. In Act 2, the hope of a kinsman redeemer for the royal line. Act 3, and it's got the verses out there. The unexpected complication for the royal line, Act 4, the redemption of the royal line, and Act 5, or excuse me, the epilogue, epilogue meaning that's the, the final portion of it, the summary of, the, of everything that came before, the ancestry of the royal line, and that's what we see with the, uh, the genealogy. So you may have studied Ruth before and just saw the ancestry of the royal line as an attachment or an addendum, and this author says, no, 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 you're not seeing this through covenant eyes covenantal eyes, eyes that recognize that God is working all this time in the leading up to David to point to David's going to be the king, the true king. Okay, so themes. Theme number one, God's sovereignty or with the overarching plan of salvation in everyday life. So if you read it, it comes across as happenstance. Nothing is happenstance. Everything is by God's providence. And we, by God's grace, know, according to Romans 8, 28 and 29, it's not just God is in control. But if you're a Christian, God is in control for your good to bring about more and more you being made in the image of his son. So not only is God in control of everything, but if you're a Christian, God is in control of everything to make you more sanctified so you image his son more. So this, build, this is the, the, the predecessor to that, that this, which precedes that. Uh, let's see. Uh, God's grace in the midst of his chastisement of his people. So... 
The family that headed over, I'm getting around saying that word, uh, uh, the name of the man, that headed over to Moab, to do, that, that ends up being uh, uh, the family that we're going to be studying today in Ruth, they're, getting, they're under chastisement. They're, they are under discipline for leaving God's grace in the midst of chastisement of his people. Wow, he could have just stayed with the chastisement theme. But that's not our God. Our God isn't, like I was taught as a young boy, a lightning bolt chucking God that gets a kick out of chucking lightning bolts at us and watching us go, whoa, whoa. No, our God is a loving God. He uses the, the discipline he brings in our life to change us, to see that, that he is involved in bringing change and he loves us enough to do it. Okay, let's continue on. And the third theme, God's good and righteous order will be carried out in the character and lives of his people, despite the everyday, everyday weakness and chaos. Remember, what's happening in Judges? What's the theme of Judges? I've got it in, in, in parentheses in there, anybody? Everybody did right in what was in their own eyes, basically. So in Judges, we got chaos. Sound like the United States of America, the whole world today, everybody doing right in their own eyes? We talked about that when we studied Judges. This is helpful. Reading Ruth is helpful to us today because we're living in the same muck and yuck of what Israel was living in as far as everybody doing everything in their own eyes. You could see, in some sense, wanting to bail and, and, and leave and go over to Moab. I, I read today that, uh, or excuse me, I listened to a podcast this week, and the, the, anybody know Jordan Peterson? Ever heard of that? He's a he's a psychologist, psychologist. I don't think psychiatrist. He's he says he's not good enough to be a Christian. So he says Christian things, but based on that statement, you can't be a Christian. That's a wrong theology. But it was interesting to hear how many Canadians are leaving Canada because they're losing their right to free speech to come over to America because that's built into our constitution. In theory, you can't just bail. You need to bring change to where you're at. Now, sometimes, you know, I don't want to make it too global of a statement, but I just thought that was interesting that, wow, kind of like what Elimelech did is what the Canadians are doing. Hey, I, uh, this is going real south. I got, I'm leaving. I'm out. I'm going to find goodness somewhere else. Okay. A sample of the irony of the story of Ruth. Will somebody read Ruth 1, 1 through 5? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of, names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was or Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malin and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Okay, let me read from the first bullet point, and I'm going to ask the question right underneath that. In the days of the judges, in other words, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes, that's where Ruth is. This is where she's, uh, this is all happening in history. A famine, quote, air quotes, happened to come to the land. So my question I'm going to ask everybody here is, according to the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God gave on Mount Sinai through Moses, um, according to the Mosaic Covenant, a famine is tied to what aspect of the covenant? 
Now, I'm gonna, I'll make it. If, you guys, if I don't see any hands, I'll give you a multiple choice. We can make this a test. Okay, no hands? Is it? Okay, hold on. Now, let's, let's, let's go over here. He's bringing the, the mic to you. If I have no God above me. It shall have no God above me. So, okay, that is absolutely what he says. Um, if you were going to categorize, which category would it fall in? in the, and we haven't studied this in, in Exodus yet because we just haven't got there. In Exodus, he's going to tell you, okay, if you do what I tell you to do in this covenant, you're going to get blessings. If you don't do what I tell you to do in this covenant, you're going to receive something we get confused in because we, we think magical, curses. What is, what is a curse? In this case, tied to a covenant, it is you're going to receive this punishment. You're going to receive this by my hand to change you back so you stop doing what you're doing wrong. So you're going to receive discipline as another way of saying, in some sense, curses. Okay, so now... Is a famine, according to the Mosaic Covenant, and it's specifically listed there, would you think it is a blessing or a curse? Curse. Great. So we, if we were Hebrews, would hear famine and go, oh, they're breaking the curse. Because of the time frame, where they are in history, and what they just got done covenanting to, a famine would be directly understanding that God's hand against them, they're being disobedient. So you got to think like a Hebrew here. So let's move forward. Elimelech, whose name means God is my king. Think about that. There's irony. I hope you're getting the irony right away. God is my king, but I'm out. I'm bailing to the other God over in Moab because he can provide prosperity for me where my God is not. So it says here, Nicholas Edward, Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, chose to do what was sinfully right in his own eyes instead of following the king's, which is his king is Yahweh. There is no human king in the land. At this time, they should see Yahweh, their God, as their king as well. The king's command to stay in the promised land where he promised to care for his people. I'm gonna, when I read today Psalm 33, uh, PJ picks Psalm 33. He's the, whoever's preaching, pre- uh, determines the psalm that we uh, use as a means of adoration. Watch uh, verse 19 today. I'm just going to leave you with that and see if it, how it ties to this. Okay. Uh, he promised, so, so Elimelech is wrong because he's leaving the land that God promised to give them as a land of, of peace and prosperity just because, and he's leaving because there's a famine, because they're doing, uh, uh, dis, they're disobeying God. All right, let's get, continue on. Bethlehem. We just read about Bethlehem here. Bethlehem means the house of bread. But because they are not obeying, I love that the author quotes it as, it's the house of crumbs. There's no bread in the land because of the famine, because they're not obeying. And you see the irony in that. Point four, both of Elimelech's sons marry foreign women. That's a no-no in the covenant. Don't do that. Don't marry foreign women because God even says in Exodus, because they'll turn your heart away from me. Men, they'll turn your heart away from me. Don't do that. And they do it anyways. And so we see here, um, and neither woman produces a child within 10 years. Really? Do you remember the book of Genesis? How many of the women, the patriarchal women, don't have uh, their wombs opened up until God opens up their womb? Demonstrating that he is the God over, the, over life. 
If they're not producing children, you're seeing the discipline in their lives. It's not happenstance. And you're going, wow, okay. And now I'm starting to follow what's going on in Ruth. Then we get to point number five there. Covenant-breaking Elimelech and his two covenant-breaking sons just happened to die. Not coincidence that that of their death. And remember, there's three of them that die. And in Hebrew numerology, numbers are, the number three is always meant to emphasize whatever is in context. So what's in context is they're breaking the covenant. You've got death due to covenant breaking. So you can see how much Ruth is, uh, Samuel is pointing to this. Okay. Uh, question number one. Well, I just said the answer. Never mind. Let's keep moving. <laughs> All right. Somebody read first uh, Ruth chapter 1, now verses 6 to 22. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of Yahweh has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Oprah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will be or there will I be buried. May Yahweh do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Now call, or why call me Naomi when Yahweh has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Okay. Uh, First off, Naomi, she's kind of fascinating because you can see that she's angry at God, but she believes in God. I mean, it's clear she believes in God. Hello, Christian, have you been there? Meaning that the circumstances you're in, 
particularly in, in a death of a loved one. And you're like, why did you take that, that person from me? Why now? Why did you choose that? What's going on? What are you doing? And yet she's this, she has this internal struggle that the author is allowing us to see because she trusts God because she's going to God. Okay. So let's, let me read a couple of things. I'm going to move through this quickly because in this last five minutes, I do want you to see some of this because it's just cool stuff. And it just makes you, I wanna, I, it makes you want to go back and read the book of Ruth with a new set of eyes. So point number one in her act number one, the punishment and predicament for the royal line, where God's judgment in the form of a famine caused Elimelech to flee the land, Yahweh's goodness causes Naomi to return to the land. So we see discipline and we see grace both working to change. God uses discipline and grace in turning us back to him. He doesn't just use discipline. He uses both, oftentimes. And we need to see the grace in it. Orpah, whose name means neck, turned her neck in an idiomatic fashion and willingly went away from Naomi. Remember, an idiom is like you kick the bucket. Well, if you, if you understand it to be exactly, if you take it literally, what does kicking the bucket have to do with death? In, our, in the United States, we mean kick, when we say, we say oh, Pa kicked the bucket. It means my dad's dead. Well, so idiomatic, you can't take it at its literal meaning. So when, but when you look at her name, her name means neck. And it, there is an idiomatic saying in there where we could say, hey, don't turn your back on me. What does that mean? Don't turn away and walk away. In Hebrew, the saying was, don't turn your neck. She turns and leaves. The one whose name is neck turns her neck and leaves while the other daughter-in-law chooses to cling to Naomi and the God of Naomi and the land of the God of Naomi. and says, I'm going your way. I'm going with you. It's just neat stuff that they're doing there. Ruth means, name means beauty. Um, and she called Yahweh. Interesting. It's a, she is calling down a curse. She is praying to Yahweh, making this statement to her mother-in-law, saying that, do to me, if I'm not loyal to, to this woman and, and you as my God, do to me as you wish. You, you can see a strong faith that God has given Ruth here. Ruth, uh, whose name means beauty, called Yahweh to bring upon her an ugly curse if she did not stay loyal to Naomi, her people, and her God. Number four, Naomi wants to be called Mara, which means bitter one, instead of Naomi, which means pleasant one or joyful one. What is she going to be in the end? In the end, she is the joyful one. She is thrilled. She has a grandbaby. And not only that, she doesn't even know that this grandbaby is, is the lineage of the king of Israel that's going to foreshadow Christ Jesus. So she doesn't know how often times, how, how many times do we want to be bitter at God because something didn't work out. We can't make out why God would do that. It could be an illness. It could be just getting older, and you can't do things, and you want to do things, and it would be more glorious if you could do more things because you could be more mobile and get it to more people, and God, why don't you just listen to my logic? And we want to get bitter at God. We don't understand what God's doing and his sovereignty. Okay, then it continues on. Naomi only sees Yahweh's judgment against her and lacks insight. She sees the outward, what she perceives through her eyes, rather than the insight of who God, who God is and what he has revealed about who he is. So we, she should be seeing, she should be gaining insight, and Naomi is only using her own eyes to determine who, what the true character of, of God is. So we're not going to read the, acts, or the act number two, but I am going to give you a couple, there's a couple of neat things as far as irony, irony in here. Now this is the big one. Naomi happened 
to have a relative of her husband who happened to be a worthy man, just like the man in Proverbs that Proverbs started out with and said, son, these are the ways to be righteous. And it ends with King Lemuel saying, this, this is what my mother taught me how to be a man of God as a leader. This is the worthy man. We have the worthy woman of Proverbs and the worthy man of Proverbs in the book of Ruth. You go, oh, wow. We, we get, this is more than just happenstance. Naomi happened to have a relative or husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, that which is in itself is amazing, whose name was Boaz, all of which was, made it possible for her land to be redeemed through the, the marriage uh, to Ruth, a worthy woman. And then we get point number two. Ruth went to glean. Glean means to take what was not harvested from the grain crops. That was a rule. The, the farmers were not allowed to take the corners, skip the corners, leave that for the poor. Anything that's dropped, leave it for the poor. She went to, now this is so cool. This is in the Hebrew language. We would never see this in the, in the uh, English that we read because our English doesn't do this. So it says this, Ruth went to glean and she happened to, according to English, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. So that's not what it says. And it's a good understanding, but it misses some of the emphasis. In the Hebrew, it says this, her chance chanced upon the path of the field. Come on. God is screaming to the, to, the, to the Hebrews, to the Jews. Her chance chanced upon this part of the field? Yeah, just by chance she picked that part of the field, and it's the perfect person she's supposed to fall under, and he gives her, he provides her, overwhelms her with grace and mercy. Come on. So we can see what God is doing there from a covenantal perspective. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read just the New Testament perspective here so we can leave with this as an encouragement how this book points to Christ. Go down into the, to the last uh, major bullet point there, or category. The kinsman redeemer serves as a messianic type. Remember, a type is something lesser. The anti-type isn't against. Anti, not against. Don't think anti that way. Anti is greater. The, the type points to the anti-type, the greater of it. So here we go. Here it is, point number one. He must be, the, the kinsman redeemer must be a blood relative, even as the in, incarnate Christ became a blood relative to humankind via the virgin birth. You see the significance of why did Jesus Christ have to be made a human being? You can't be a, a uh, how, why did he have to, I'll say it this way, this is more theologically correct. Why was he clothed in human flesh by way of birth? He always has been, he wasn't just born. Because that's what the kinsman redeemer does. It has to be someone from the lineage, from the line. It has to be a, another human being. And then continue on. He must have the means to redeem the forfeited inheritance, even as Christ alone had the merit to redeem sinners. Uh, and number three, he must be wi a willing redeemer, even as Christ was willingly laid down his life for the sinners. The unwilling kinsman redeemer is lost to history. You realize that person was never listed in the book of Ruth? The, the guy who was actually the next in line to redeem Ruth said no. Too much cost to my family. And he's never mentioned. In fact, you know in the Hebrew, you know what name he, they give him? They actually give him a name. So-and-so. That's what it means in Hebrew. That's the actual name that he's given. That's a disrespect to him. You chose to pass on my plan of salvation. Now, he didn't know it. But do you see what he's doing? The writer's doing, the inspired writing is doing to help the Jews understand this? And then lastly, he must be willing to marry the wife of a deceased kinsman, which typifies the marriage relationship between Christ and the church. And I'll let you read that last point there. 
Sorry, we don't have more time. I'm over. I got to pray and we got to get going to get ready for the sermon. Let's, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for how amazing you are. We could come every day of the week with the, the, the length of our span of lives here and all the time that uh, once we depart and are with you in your eternal presence in heaven and never fully grasp how amazing you are. You're an amazing God. You are infinite. And I, I just love that we are on the starting point. We are on the road to being excited and delighted in the bigness of our God, the greatness of our God, the many facets of our God. Please continue to excite us in this way. Make us all students. Uh, disciples is a better word. Disciples who want to learn from the teacher, the one who actually was teacher and savior. We thank you for this day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.